so a doctor, a lawyer, and a preacher go hunting. You already know it's a joke. And they see a trophy buck. A deer comes out with a huge rack of antlers that any hunter would be proud to have mounted on his wall. They all fire. The deer falls. But when they go to investigate, it's clear that only one bullet struck that deer. And they don't know which rifle that bullet came from. They can't find the bullet. So they go and take the animal in town to a taxidermist to ask if he could help. He said, let me study. I bet I can tell who killed this deer. And after a few minutes, he said, obviously the preacher shot this animal. They said, how can you tell? He said, well, look at the wound. The bullet went in one ear and out the other. (laughs) Now, we make jokes like that because a lot of people just talk and that's all they do in their Christian life. Now, let's be clear. Christianity has a message. It is good news and this news needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be spoken. But Christianity is more than just talk. And one way we need to communicate that is by the way we literally use the word Christian. You see, in our culture, there has been a shift. And the primary way the word Christian is used today is as an adjective to describe things. So, for example, we go to a Christian concert with our friends from our Christian softball league to listen to Christian music that we first heard on our favorite Christian radio station where they advertised a Christian cruise, where we go on vacation in our Christian t-shirts, wearing our Christian jewelry. And I'm not saying those things are bad. In fact, I've done all those things except the part about the cruise. But in the Bible, the word Christian is never used as an adjective. It is always used as a noun. And you remember from your language arts classes in elementary school that nouns need verbs. And so does your discipleship. To be authentically Christian, you must add verbs to your faith. For example... The classic chapter in the Bible on what faith looks like is Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer gives example after example of heroes of faith from the Old Testament. And every one of them is depicted by a verb. So Abel brought and Abraham offered and Noah built and Jacob worshipped. And over and over, faith is depicted with verbs. So what we're going to do the next few weeks is we're going to go to the book of James. Now, we're not going to do a verse-by-verse look at the book of James. What we're going to do is look at some key verbs in the book that we need to add to our faith. And we're going to start with the verb that might be the least obvious And it might also be the most important. And it's found in James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror 
and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The point is obvious. Christianity is doable. In other words, true, authentic Christian faith has a doing component. And this is a big theme in the book of James. Now, for years, some have said there's a tension between James and Paul that I don't think personally exists. I think what they're doing is emphasizing different things. Paul is emphasizing the fact that what we do doesn't produce salvation. And James is emphasizing the equal truth that salvation produces what we do. In other words, salvation is never the product of merit. But salvation always produces ministry. So James will say in chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accomplished by action, is dead. Now, James is not saying that we need to add deeds to our faith. He's saying that deeds are the evidence of what authentic faith is. Let's say you're walking down the street. On the side of a road, you see a motionless body. You're going to go over there and you're going to try to discern is this body dead or alive? And how are you going to do that? Is that body doing anything? Is there a pulse? Are the eyes moving? Is there any brain activity? Can you determine a heartbeat? Because the absence of doing makes you think dead. And that's what James is trying to say. That you show what you really believe by how you actually behave. And Paul would say, Amen. In fact, I want to show you the two chief places in Paul's writings where he clearly says, We are not saved by what we do. And I want you to notice what he says is the result of that. Ephesians chapter 2, for it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're not saved by what we do, but we are saved to do things. This has always been God's plan. Titus chapter 3 says the same thing. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And I don't know how this could be any more clear. Not because of righteous things we had done. But because of His mercy. 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things. In other words, Titus, I want you to preach this over and over. I want you to talk about it. I want you to live it. I want you to tell people all the time they are saved by grace. Their salvation is a result of the merciful choice of God. They were washed by the Holy Spirit. That's why they're saved. Now, you say that over and over and over. Why do you need to stress these things? Here's why. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. When you have been floored by the enormity of God's grace on you, it's going to do something in you. And you're going to do something for somebody else. Some of you know the name of Herb Kelleher. He was the founder and for years CEO of Southwest Airlines in a very difficult industry that often sees bankruptcy filings. Southwest Airlines had four decades of unprecedented growth and profits. But on their 25th anniversary, a financial analyst chided Herb Kelleher and said, You have no strategic plan for this business. He says, yes, we do. And the analyst said, what is your strategic plan? He said, it's called doing things. That's a good plan. And that's what James is saying. That you never use grace as a rationalization for verb-free discipleship. And what I just said is so important. I'm going to rephrase it and let it sink in. Because I'm wondering if someone's listening to me right now. And your basic definition of a Christian is someone who doesn't do a lot of stuff. And when someone would examine your life and say, what does being a Christian actually cause you to do? The answer is not much. Don't use grace as an excuse for verb-free Discipleship. That's a distortion of grace. We're not saved by doing. But we are saved for doing. So, let's do the math. What does it mean to add verbs to our faith? Three equations I want you to remember. Here's number one. Knows does not equal does. Let me illustrate. Every year in America, 600,000 people have heart bypass surgery. Isn't it amazing? Here are people on the brink of death. Arteries are clogged. And skilled surgeons literally reroute their arteries and save their lives. And then they all get the same speech. Here's what you need to do now. You need to stop smoking. Don't drink so much. Eat healthier. And start exercising. And the stunning thing is that surveys show that within two years, 90% of heart bypass patients have made none of those changes. They were at the brink of death, which just goes to show knowledge 
does not guarantee life change. It's true in the spiritual realm that growing disciples is more than just gaining insights. We are deceived if we think that just coming and sitting in rows and listening to someone like me give you a weekly theological aha, and then we all feel bad that we're not being better and that somehow that's going to make us all get better is ridiculous. That simply getting information doesn't produce transformation. James says that's as foolish as thinking that just looking at a mirror is going to make you look better. Now there are two ways you can know what you look like. You can look at yourself in a photograph or you can look at yourself in a mirror. Now I know not a single one of you got out of bed this morning, looked at a photograph of yourself and thought, man, I am looking good today. You went and looked at a mirror and thought, man, there are some things to do. And the Word is like a mirror. So don't be deceived that knows equals does. Let me illustrate another way. In my office for years, I have had a volume of works that are generically called Kittle. They're theological dictionaries. They're some of the greatest scholarship of New Testament Greek words ever produced. The first four volumes by Gerhard Kittel. This is one of those volumes. It's over a thousand pages, and you can see how fine the print is. It is brilliant New Testament scholarship. Gerhard Kittel was a devoted Nazi. One of the most... Gifted New Testament scholars of the last generation supported one of the most wicked regimes of any generation. I know it's an extreme example, but I want it to be to make the point that you won't forget that it is easy to be deceived that just because I'm learning things in my head, my life, is changing. You see, in the Western world, we think that you know something and then you go do it. But in the world that Jesus lived, they believed until you did it, you didn't really know it. Uh, this is illustrated by one of his most famous stories. So a guy is going down to Jericho. He gets mugged and left for dead in a ditch. These two religious fellows, a priest and a Levite, walk by and don't do anything for him. And then a guy that nobody wants to be the hero of the story, because he's a Samaritan, goes by and helps the man in the ditch. Now, everyone knows what's coming. They know what question Jesus is going to ask. So here's the question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer doesn't want to answer the question, but he can't help it. He says... The one who had mercy on him. Now notice what Jesus said next. He does not say, you go and feel likewise. You go and pray likewise. You go and have a Bible study. He said, you go and you do 
Likewise. Because in the Bible, you don't really know it in your head until it shows up in your hands and in your feet. Because knows does not equal does. Now here's another important equation. Do is greater than don't. And I think one reason a lot of us have accepted verb-free Christianity is because we mistakenly believe that being a Christian is primarily about a list of things that you don't do. I'm a Christian, so I don't do this and I don't do that. But listen, it's so much more than what you avoid. It's what you pursue. Following Jesus is not just a list of thou shalt nots. Now, you do say no to some things if you follow Jesus. But the reason you say no to some things isn't so that you can say yes to other things. Because holiness is more than just the absence of badness. It is the pursuit. It is the presence of active goodness. We have been set apart from so that we can be set apart to. So let's go back to James. Now he just got through saying, don't be deceived. It's not what you know. It's what you do that counts. What do you mean, James? Give me an example. Very next verse. Look at it with me. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. Their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted By the world. You want to know what you need to do? Start with your mouth. Stop putting people down. And don't open your mouth unless you can say something kind to somebody. And help people in distress while keeping yourself unpolluted by the world. Now, by the way, there is no and in the Greek language. Help widows and orphans in their distress, staying unpolluted from the world. In other words, the way you keep from getting polluted by the world is you stay committed to helping people in the world who are in distress. You see, I know religion typically today is used in a bad way. It's popular to say, well, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. But James doesn't think religion is a bad word. There's bad religion, but there's good religion. There's religion that is pure and flawless that God wants. See, the thing about religion is it's public. It's communal. You've got to do it with other people. What does I'm spiritual but I'm not religious even mean? Frankly, it's kind of a self-absorbed saying. It just means I think a lot of thoughts to myself. I don't think James would be impressed at all with your deep spiritual thoughts. He doesn't want to know how you think differently. He wants to know, is your life making a difference to anybody else? You see, there's a doing component to real religion that trumps what you're thinking. 
And so several years ago, I read an editorial in the New York Times by a man named Nicholas Kristof who writes for that paper. Now, you know that in the East Coast media, conservative Christians are often mocked and caricatured. And there are many examples of hypocritical Christians that you can use for fodder. But Kristof took a different take. He said, in my reporting on poverty, disease, oppression, I've seen so many evangelicals who are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities, to hunger, to malaria, to prison rape, to human trafficking or genocide. Some of the bravest people you'll ever meet are evangelical Christians who truly live their faith. Now, I'm not particularly religious myself. But I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see their faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. I think he's right on. Are there Christians who are hypocrites? Absolutely. But I'm going to tell you, go to the food bank, go to the prisons, go to the orphanages, go to the soup kitchens. You're going to find a disproportionate number of conservative Christians who are there because they understand that following Jesus compels them not just to think differently, but to make a difference. You see, the vulnerable of the world don't need your deep religious thoughts. They need verbs. When you're in distress, you need verbs. And you know faith is real when you see someone do for somebody who will probably never be able to do back. But that doesn't make doing a bad investment. Here's the last equation. James says doing equals blessing. He's just following what his brother taught him. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So James says, you will be blessed in what you do. In the upside down economy of the kingdom of God, you are enriched when you invest in other people. Paul put it like this in Titus. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. For two reasons. Here's number one. In order to provide for urgent needs. There are people out there in real distress. They need help. That's one reason we do good. Here's a second. So that our people will not live unproductive lives. Another version puts it like this. Then our people will not have empty lives. The emptiest life is the life that is full of itself. And the fullest life. Is a life that empties itself for other people. And so when you do for someone who can't do back, the Bible says the blessing goes both ways. They receive the blessing of help. And you receive the blessing of God. One of the neatest illustrations of that I read about was a story from the life of Dan Clark. He grew up in the Depression. His family was poor. 
You can imagine how excited he was when his dad saved $20 to take him to the circus. He's got thoughts of clowns and acrobats and elephants going through his imagination as they stand in line to get their tickets. And in front of them was a family of ten. A mother, a father, and eight small kids. And Dan said, we didn't have money, but they were really poor. You could tell just by how they were dressed. And those kids were so excited. This was going to be the thrill of their life. The father asked for ten tickets, two adults, eight kids. And then his face dropped. And it became obviously clear he didn't have enough money. That's when Dan watched his father reach into his pocket, pull out his $20 bill, drop it on the ground, and then pick it up and tap that father and say, Excuse me, sir, I think this fell out of your pocket. And both men knew exactly what was happening. And that father, with tears in his eyes, grabbed Dan's father's arm and said, Thank you. This means so much to my family. Dan and his father turned around and went home. And he wrote, We didn't go to the circus, but we didn't go without. He would say that day was one of the biggest blessings of his life. Because you see, the gospel is bigger than just getting into heaven. The gospel is also getting heaven into the world. The gospel compels us to add verbs. Because when you stand before Jesus, and you will, you don't want to hear well thought or well felt. You want to hear well done. Well done. So here's my question for you. How do you do? What's your verb? What's the verb that best defines how you are following Jesus? No matter what that verb is, it's just another way of saying Give. And that's what I love about Renew Weekend. We give. Everything we give today, we give away. To help people in distress. It's interesting that James would care about orphans. In their world, if your dad was dead, you were an orphan. James and Jesus were orphans. Mary was a widow. James knew what it was like to live in distress. He knew what it was like to live not knowing what you might eat tomorrow. And that's what these 12 ministries do. They bless people in distress. And what I love about them especially, I'll be honest with my bias, they help kids. Whether it's getting a dad off drugs or a mom out of the sex industry or taking a child to camp, or putting clothes on his back, or giving him a school to go to, or a safe bed to sleep in, or keeping him from being aborted. Here's the reality. Our world is evil and full of brokenness. 
and the people who didn't cause the problem and who can't fix the problem typically pay the biggest price for the problem. The kids. And renew is our chance to do something about that. So if you're one of our servers, would you take your place, please? And after I pray, we're going to worship. And as we worship, we are going to generously do something to take a piece of heaven into the world. So, Father, hear our prayer. And in these next few moments, increase the size of our hearts. So that there's more room for generosity. So that there's more room for compassion. So that there's more room in our hearts for joy. For the privilege of partnering with you in blessing the world. Please bless every dollar given. So that a need will be met and that Jesus will be seen for His sake. Amen.